Thank you for subscribing to the Unamended Christadelphian Audio Archive Podcast. For more exhortations, classes, Sunday school lessons, and study guides, please visit our website at www.christadelphianaudio.org. So we will get right down to where we were last time. Uh, if you will remember, we were reading in the ninth chapter, verses 19 to 22, the account of how Moses uh, cleansed the typical tabernacle. And back in verse 12, we read how the true tabernacle was cleansed. As it says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained redemption. So resuming at uh, verse 23, it's necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. In other words, the... Uh, tabernacle and all that pertain to it were patterns of the heavenly things and the heavenly things refers to Christ and the things that pertain to the name of Jesus Christ. So they were uh, purified with animal sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And of course, that better sacrifice is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus himself. For he says, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, like the Aaronic high priest did. He says, which are figures of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And in that case, the for us is justified, where it is not as it is added in verse 12. And so Jesus has entered into the most holy place, the true most holy place, namely the presence of God which the Aaronic high priest could only enter into in symbol, in type. It says, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest, that is the Aaronic high priest, entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. And we know that the, sac that the ritual... The cleansing of the nation on the Day of Atonement took place every year. And, of course, the fact that it was repeated showed that no one of those was effective for the cleansing of the nation. And furthermore, uh, the Aaronic high priest, as it says, took in blood of others, that is, the blood of slain animals. But the blood of slain animals had no connection with human sin. 
And the only connection that a sacrifice had with a sinner was symbolically represented when the sinner, when he offered his sacrifice before killing it, laid his hand on the head of the animal, thereby symbolically to identify himself with it. Then it says, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world or the beginning of the Mosaic economy. And as far as that's concerned, also the foundation particularly of the new economy. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. As it says, he has appeared to put away sin. And as we will read in the 10th chapter, uh, in verse 4, that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It was prophesied in Genesis that the seed of the woman should bruise the head of the serpent. And this was done when Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Sin did indeed claim him as a victim in that he died, and yet in that short victory, sin was defeated. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him, or wait for him, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. It was necessary that he die only once, as he takes up in the next chapter as well. This was God's way of doing things, and we want to refer back to several verses in the 8th chapter of Romans here, uh, where we read in verse 3, for, for what the law, meaning the Mosaic law, could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, human flesh couldn't keep it, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and the word likeness does not mean similarity, it means identity here. Jesus bore sinful flesh and for sin he was sent that sin might be defeated in his flesh he condemned sin in the flesh in other words uh, sin was condemned because it was triumphed over and his flesh was lifted up for all to see as he said like as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, as Moses did so, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And there in that fleshly body, sin was held up 
as the criminal that which involves the whole human race in death. So he says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Jesus walked completely after the spirit. We walk only imperfectly after the spirit. But in the mercy of God, if we are willing humbly to accept the means that he has provided, he will overlook our sins of weakness. And so when he appears the second time without sin, he will no longer bear the body of sin, but a glorious body. And so Paul wrote to the Philippians, for our conversation, or better translated, our citizenship is in heaven, whence also we await the Savior, Christ Jesus, who shall change our vile body and fashion it like unto his own glorious body. This is the body in which he will return. So he continues, For the law having a shadow, really, you might say, a hint, a symbol of the good things to come, the things which pertain to the time when God's purpose will be fulfilled, and not the very or true image of the things, can never with those animal sacrifices which they offered year by year, particularly on the Day of Atonement, make the comers thereunto, or the worshippers, perfect. Or then would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, there's no use repeating effective sacrifices because that the worshippers once purged or cleansed should have had no more conscience of sins. And the fact that the offerings were repeated then should have told them, tell us, tells us that the offerings were not effective. But they only pointed toward a truly effective offering. So he says, But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Then in verse 5 he quotes from the Psalms, uh, particularly the 40th Psalm, it says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, and this refers, uh, at least in the first part, to his first advent, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. And yet we know that according to the law, burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins were required. But this didn't give God 
the ultimate pleasure and satisfaction that he achieved in the sacrifice of his son because it continues then said I lo I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will O God that's what Christ came for to do God's will in all things which included of course the sacrifice uh, the ultimate sacrifice when the writer says above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by or according to the law then said he lo I come to do thy will O God so he is pointing out here then the ineffectuality of animal sacrifices and the effectiveness of doing God's will so the conclusion is he that is God taketh away the first of course through Jesus Christ namely animal sacrifices that he may establish the second which is doing God's will he says by the which will that is by God's will we are sanctified or made holy set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once before all uh, is added and every Levitical priest is understood here standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins and so we see then the futility of the mosaic institution in the ultimate objective though it was definitely required for the time being until as he says imposed until a time of reformation but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God henceforth expecting or awaiting till his enemies be made his footstool so there he sits at his father's right hand performing his high priestly function awaiting the time that the father has appointed for him to return to issue in the new order for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified one offering alone was necessary when it was an effective offering whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us after that he had said before uh, and now he quotes Jeremiah 31 again this is the covenant that I will make with them that is the people to whom God had given the Mosaic law after those days saith the Lord I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins 
and their iniquities will I remember no more. Unfortunately, uh, God's laws were not in the hearts of the Israelites. Yes, they went through with the mechanical formalities, but their hearts were not in it, and they still continue to go through the formalities as best they can. Because they can't do it completely, they can't offer animal sacrifices now. Then uh, the writer, I agree, Morris Paul, uh, says, Now, where remission, and remission means literally a sending back or a giving back of these, that is, of sins, is, there's no more offering for sin, or there is no further need for sin offering. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, and this doesn't mean arrogance, far from it, but rather having the privilege or the liberty, as the margin in this version renders it, to enter into the holiest, the presence of God, through the blood of Jesus, through a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And this tells us then what the veil stood for in the Mosaic tabernacle. And in front of the veil stood the golden altar of incense. And when the high priest went into the most holy place, the cloud of incense passed through the veil over the mercy seat uh, that the high priest die not. And we learn from Revelation, of course, the significance of incense as the prayers of the saints. And so in a figure then, the prayers of the saints entered into the presence of God through the veil which we learn represented Christ's flesh. And so we have this absolutely incomparable privilege to present our thoughts, our prayers, our petitions to God through Jesus Christ. It is a privilege that should never be lightly esteemed. It is a living way because it holds the promise of life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man cometh unto the Father but through me. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, that is, rejoicing in this great privilege, this liberty, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And this, of course, means that unless our conscience is cleansed through the sprinkling of the water of the word washing our bodies 
in baptism accomplishes nothing. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And James says, He that wavereth is like the wave of the sea, driven by the wind and tossed, like a bit of flotsam and jetsam. We have to hold fast this profession as he has previously told us back in the third chapter. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. The word provoke doesn't necessarily mean to make angry. The Latin stem means to call forth. In other words, we are to call one another forth unto love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, and still is, we might say, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. And if they were taught to believe that the day was approaching in those days, certainly we should recognize that the day is approaching. And we should all recognize that the day is just as close as the day of our death, which we do not know. Now we come to a verse that has caused much difficulty and for many people much anxiety, where he says, If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. Now, we know, of course, that usually there is a, an element of willfulness in all sin. And this has caused many people much anxiety. But if it, but if it has caused them anxiety, then they're not sinning willfully. The person who sins willfully is the one who abandons Christ who departs from the faith. And this he has indicated in the previous verse. Those who forsake the assembling of themselves together, who turn back to the world. And the following verses indicated too that there is no more sacrifice for apostate Christians, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries, because whoever forsakes Christ and God becomes his adversary and can expect fiery indignation. And so, by comparison, he says, first of all, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. And I think it's worth our time, even though time is short, to turn back to Deuteronomy 17 and, and see what God had to say about that. Uh, verses 2 to 7 in Deuteronomy 17 says, If there be found among you with any of, within any of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee, 
man or woman, that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God, in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods, and worshipped them, either the sun or moon, or any of the host of heaven, or as we might say in our day, money, pleasure, job, you name it, any idol that we turn away from God to worship, which I have not commanded, and if it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought in Israel, then thou shalt bring forth that man or that woman which have committed that wicked thing unto thy gates, even that man or that woman, and shalt stone them with stones till they die. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness shall uh, he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. Do you think we should be any less diligent in our day if we see those straying from the straight and narrow way? Granted, it takes some courage to do it, not that we have the authority to stone them to death with stones, but as we read here in the 25th verse of Hebrews 10, uh, uh, if we see someone falling away, it is our duty at least to warn them. And God, through Ezekiel in the 18th and 33rd chapters, tells us that we should warn the wicked. So this was what God required under the Mosaic law. Now he says, by contrast, of how much sorer punishment, because the privilege is greater in this dispensation, suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy or common thing. In other words, has lightly esteemed the offering by which he was made a potential son of God. And hath done despite unto the spirit of grace, that is God's grace. He was writing to Hebrews. They knew their scriptures, and he quotes a couple of them in verse 30. For we know him that said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days in which ye were illuminated, uh, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great conflict of afflictions, and mainly from their own brethren, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions with them that were so used. 
This next verse hints at the Pauline authorship of the epistle. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance, or that our treasure is reserved in heaven for us, not that anyone is going there to get it. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. In other words, uh, don't leave your first love, as the Ephesians were accused by Jesus of having done. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. But the reward comes only, as in Jesus' case, after having done God's will. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. And this, of course, has been the principle from Old Testament times and so announced in the scriptures. But if any man draw back or sin willfully, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. It says, But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe the saving of the soul. In other words, he is hoping that they do indeed conform to that pattern. Now, this 11th chapter, the chapter that deals with faith, is a long one, and in the interest of uh, the little bit of time we have left and some other things of importance, I'm going to touch only certain points in this 11th chapter. I'm not going to read all these Old Testament examples, but there are a few verses that we do want to comment on, where he says, Now, faith is the substance or confidence of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, as the Apostle Paul says, for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? We, we have to go on the basis of Evidence presented to our minds, even though we cannot behold with our eyes the things that are promised. And he lists a number of the ancient worthies who went on this evidence, namely that God had spoken and didn't demand that God produce then and there. It says, For by it the elders obtained a good report. And so he goes on through these uh, ancient worthies, naming some of them, showing how that they did things such as Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldees and going into a land he didn't know of. As it says in verse 10, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, 
in other words, a lasting city. And we are to realize that we have here no uh, lasting city. Whose builder and maker is God? And then he points out Sarah's faith and how it was made possible for her to bear Isaac and through him a multitude and from Abraham. Verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, that is, being faithful, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them. In other words, they lived as though these were complete realities that could be counted upon, even though the time had not arrived, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, not the country they were in. And by country it doesn't mean land, geography, but rather the order of things that existed. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country, that order, that pagan order, uh, from uh, whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned but now they desire a better, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And so, uh, skipping down to the 39th verse of chapter 11, he says, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, as we said, faith means not merely accepting something as true, but obedience. They received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect or complete, that is, should not have attained unto the spirit birth, should not have received the glorious body like our Lord has. Then speaking of these witnesses, he says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, just as an athlete in a race wears no more than modesty requires and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. In races, you know, there are sprinters and there are long-distance runners. Uh, in some ways, it's easier to be a sprinter than a long-distance runner. But rather than try to emulate sprinters, we should prepare to be long-distance runners. In other words, run with patience or endurance. 
measuring our strength, the distance ahead of us, and not expending it all of a sudden. Looking unto Jesus, the author or beginner and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the uh, joy that was set before him? That he might come into the presence of his Father, that he might fulfill the Father's will, that he might bring many sons unto glory. And for this he suffered much. As he says, For consider him that hath endured such contradiction or gainsaying of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, as Jesus did, of course, striving against sin. His struggle against sin lasted to his very last breath. Of course, there have been many followers of Christ who have resisted unto blood, but those to whom he was writing obviously had not yet. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. And so uh, he quotes here uh, from uh, Job. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. In other words, God's interested in the possible outcome. And if we are not able to discipline ourselves as Jesus was able to discipline himself, and certain other worthies have been able to discipline themselves, then it may be necessary for him to uh, provide the right amount of hardship of whatever kind, and it will vary with every individual and according to his particular needs. And, of course, as he points out, uh, that chastening isn't pleasant. Nevertheless, it's done for a good purpose. And as uh, it says here in the sixth verse, that God scourges or chastens every son whom he receiveth. As he says, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? And every parent who is a wise parent knows what will happen to his children if he just lets them have their own way all the time. They grow up as weeds and... Uh, become almost unendurable, first to others and then finally to themselves. It's by strict discipline that we learn to be uh, tolerable human beings. And the same is true in the spiritual sense. And he says if we do not have 
the necessary discipline, then he says we're bastards and not true sons, and points out, we just mentioned, that our fleshly fathers saw the wisdom of chastening their children. He says, and we gave them reverence, because, of course, we feared further chastening in many cases. He says, Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Obviously, uh, the logic is incontrovertible. He says, For they that is our earthly fathers for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, not for their own fun, of course, but according to their best judgment. But he that is God for our profit, we said God is hopeful for the best result, the best outcome of each life, that we might be partakers of his holiness. And God said repeatedly, Be ye therefore holy, for I am holy. And so speaking of the fact that it isn't pleasant to be chastened, he says, in the middle of verse 11, nevertheless, afterward, that is, after it is over, and if it is successful, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. But if we're not exercised by it, if we just rebel against it, or if we, as we say in the vernacular, toss in the towel because it's getting a little too rugged for us, then uh, it doesn't result in righteousness. So he says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. And the word straight in, is rendered even in the margin here. Uh, in other words, we should keep our eyes on the goal and on the path that leads to the goal, and not deviate. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Then he says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And holiness means, as we know, separateness. We are to separate ourselves unto the service of God and to separate ourselves from the world, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Or as he had said earlier today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And certainly we have all seen in our midst the bitter fruit which is born of bitter feeling among brethren. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, as we said in, I believe, the other class yesterday, Esau was 
is called a profane person because he was common, he was an animal man, he lightly esteemed the opportunity of becoming the priest for the family, being the firstborn, and he sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. We can do the same thing. And what miserable messes of pottage people often do sell their birthright for. And like Esau, they wake up later on to find what fools they have been. He says, For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, in other words, if I need stop to think about it, he found no place of repentance though he sought it diligently with tears. There are points of no return, and we have to be careful that we don't reach such. And he says, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burn with fire. This is that burning mountain that Morris has been talking to you about in the next class referring, of course, to Mount Sinai, where the people received the law, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words. Uh, why was a trumpet voice used there? We think, you remember, there were two reasons for which the trumpet was sounded. One was to call an assembly of the people of God, which there was at Mount Sinai, and the other was to prepare for war. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated uh, that uh, the words should not be spoken to them any more. Isn't time up, Ralph? Brethren and sisters, this has been a privilege given to us by the Almighty to attend this Bible school and to have God's Word opened unto us as we have seen it during this first class period this year.